have the lengthy handout. This is installment four of four. I promise we do indeed finish today. Look at, the, uh, look at page two. I want us to read together like we did last week. The verse we're springboarding off of. Stand if you would. Give your, uh, give, stretch your feet for a second. It's page two of the, the, the handout on overcoming fear of death. And this is Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 2a, together, beloved. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Now stay standing. I'm going to ask that we continue to read together. And I just want to emphasize for the last time this ambivalence that we find in the Bible and that we actually feel in our hearts as we think about death. Ambivalence is the word that sort of captures this being torn emotionally in two apparently opposing directions. So, ladies, will you read the first ambivalence that follows the ambivalence we feel? Ladies, the first two lines there together from the ladies. Thank you. On the other hand, men, let's affirm together, from the perspective of what awaits believers for all eternity after they die, death is a necessary thing that we need not fear. Thank you. You may be seated. You may know the name Kevin Twitt. Kevin is the RUF campus minister at Belmont University in Nashville. He is a musician. And the Lord used Kevin to bring to my life and the church and many, many college campuses the music of indelible grace. In fact, you sang earlier on Jordan Stormy Banks. That is one of the songs that have come from the work of Kevin Twitt taking old, rich hymns and retuning them to different music that college students and others love to sing. Kevin's one of my heroes. The, the, the work of uh, his, his music, Indelible Grace, has one of, had a profound impact on my spiritual life. He relates the story of one time being at Wheaton College at, on a panel for Worship Leader Magazine. So he was a panelist for Worship Leader Magazine, and the question was asked of the panelists, what do you look for in songs that are pitched to you? I guess the different panelists gave their answers. In Kevin's turn, Kevin said this, I am looking for songs that form my students for their encounter with death. That is jaw-dropping in its beauty and grace and pastoral genius. He's looking to form his students for their encounter with death. In a sense, that's what this handout is. The inevitable. There's a time to be born and a time to die. And the point I've been trying to make is that the more you know about it, the better prepared you are. 
the better prepared you are, the greater confidence you have. The greater confidence based on Scripture, the less fear. So this handout is sort of one frail pastor's attempt to do a flyover the Scriptures and make observations about many of the different things, surely not all, but many of the different things the Bible teaches us about death so that we need not fear it. If you listened to Jamie's prayer earlier, there's a, the, the, the devil keeps people in fear, a slavery to fear of death. God wants you free from that. So let's pick up on the outline at point 34, it's page 9. And we will finish the outline today asking the Holy Spirit to deliver us from fear, fill our hearts with confidence that we might live every day joyfully before the Lord, seizing moment by moment, living for His glory and by His grace. Point 34, some people die for their own inexcusable carelessness. You see this particularly in the book of Proverbs as the sage tells us how to live, where to find life, how to avoid what destroys life. There are people that, if they leave sin unchecked, may die as a result of it. Proverbs 5, 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Now, when you hear that, you should ask, Lord, is there folly in my heart? How is sin enslaving me? What should I do about it? Sin has a way of blinding you to its final destiny, that is, death. Proverbs 5.5 5 speaks of the adulteress. It could just as well be the adulterous man. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of her life. Her ways wander. She doesn't know it. Living a kind of lifestyle that's going to end in death and unaware because sin has blinded you to its consequences. And then Scripture is clear that some deaths are the fruit of just a, a reckless lifestyle. Proverbs 1.18, these men lie in wait for their own blood. They think they're killing others. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who's greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. The good warning. And you, sort of, you, you may be wondering, why are human beings like that? I'll read you a quote from one of my mentors, Jack Miller. He pastored New Life Presbyterian Church when I was in seminary in the 1980s. And Jack says this in one of his writings. In each of us, there is an ugly human energy driving us away from God. A reactive allergy to God and His holiness. A refusal to submit to His control and a treasonous disloyalty to His person and laws. This makes us objects of His wrath. Beloved, that's in your heart, that's in my heart, and there's one glorious solution to this. Jesus, he will take the wrath due your sins. He will give you a new heart equipped with the Spirit to battle this reactive 
allergic energy that moves you from God. You don't have to live and die this way. Christ will rescue you from it, give you a new heart, the power of his spirit, take the penalty for your sins. It's the good news of the gospel. Point 35. Some deaths result from God's disciplining hand upon both believers and unbelievers. You, you see this in Scripture. I would say what I'm about to read to you really capture the essence of the English word terrifying. Terrifying. Some in the church in Corinth because of their failure to maintain unity in the church, are sick and dying. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Anyone who eats and drinks at, at the Lord's Supper without discerning the body, that is the Christ, the, the, uh, the church, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's a terrifying thing. Why, when, when we come to the Lord's table, we're called to examine ourselves. The situation in the early chapters of Acts, there's a, there's a massive movement of generosity, and one couple, Ananias and Sapphira, sell land and they pretend like they're giving all the money from it, but they're holding some money back. It's a, it's a serious breach. What happens to them? Immediately, she, Sapphira, fell down at Peter's feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, Ananias. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I guess so. But that's a terrifying thing. I'm not saying every time you and I are dishonest with the Lord about our finances, we can expect to die. No. This is a unique period, as it were, in redemptive history. But fear came upon the church. Do we need more of that? How we conduct ourselves. They're dying because of it. And then unbelievers, the story in Numbers where there was a rebellion against Moses and Aaron's authority led by Korah and his family. This is a terrifying thing. As soon as they'd finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the whole earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. This is a terrifying thing. How seriously do we think about the Lord's authority in our lives? I'm not saying if you struggle with that, this is going to happen to you. But there are certain deaths that don't have to be sin left unchecked. There's no excuse for carelessness with our own rebellion, our own lust for autonomy. For autonomy, Jesus will change it by his spirit. David reflects at the end of Psalm 55, but you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. That's the antidote. I will trust in the Lord. I will trust in you. Point 36. There is one death of particular interest to God, the death of his precious and only son, Jesus Christ. In all the deaths that have taken place in all of history, countless, there is one 
that captures, as it were, the absolute, undivided affection of the heart of God, and that is the death of his son, Jesus. David Minor reminded us at the Lord's table, at the Lord's table a couple, of week, a couple of weeks ago from Isaiah 53 that it pleased the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush him. That comes from Isaiah 53. Isaiah seeing so clearly the work of the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how his work is described beginning at Isaiah 53, 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, stricken in the place of the sins of my people. Jesus came as a substitute to die in your place. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. He was put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, your guilt in your place, Jesus made this perfect sacrificial offering. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities." Jesus Christ living the righteous life you never could in your place, bearing your iniquities on the cross in your place. This is the gospel of the substitute. Jesus in your place. Your salvation is all done outside of you, for you, in your place. It's the only region in the world where you are saved by someone else, a substitute. And it sort of raises the question in our minds, what is, what, why does God take such an interest in this one particular death? Because in his son, God reveals his glory. God, has, he reveals his glory to in his son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, you see so clearly the character of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the justice of God, the faithfulness of God to his promises and his covenant in Christ. You see in Jesus Christ God's authority over all things natural and supernatural. You see particularly in Jesus Christ made manifest the compassion of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, and the pity of God on his enemies, giving grace to his enemies. It isn't the good people Jesus died for. But we see the glory of God, how he pities those who otherwise hate him and rebel against him and have nothing to do with him in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The scripture is clear that Christ died voluntarily for your salvation, John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And he does it in pure, delightful obedience to his Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do, Jesus prayed. He did so to ransom, to buy, to redeem, to rescue a people for himself and his Father 
1 Peter 3.18, Christ offered, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. See, in your place, in your place, taking what you deserve, that he might bring us to God. You might say, what, in the, what on earth was Jesus doing? What was he doing? He was accomplishing a salvation that enabled him to take you and me, filthy, ruined dirty sinners, and bring us to God. It's the only way to come to God. Some of you think that when you die, you can go through that door into the next life because you've been a good person. Oh, no. No. Dispense with that notion. Good people don't die and go into the presence of a holy God because they still have sin. Some of you are leaving this earth through that door, and you're thinking, I'm a nine. There's no God. As soon as you die, you're like an animal. You cease to exist. Oh, no. I'd love to talk to you about that view, if that's your view. Let's talk after the service. There's one door through which we can die and be assured of standing immediately in the presence of God accepted, standing in union with Jesus Christ, one with Christ, benefiting from his righteousness, from his death. And this is what Paul is essentially saying in Romans 5, 8. Excuse me, 5, 8, yes. Christ shows us his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It is curious that Paul uses, I think only here, the phrase justified by his blood. That is telling you the formal reason God can make unholy people holy for his presence, and that is through the righteous death of Jesus. Normally, Paul talks about justified by faith, right? That's how we began chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The thing I want you to see that's so critical and it's going to play into the rest of the handout is, is the Bible teaches that the moment you trust Jesus, the moment you lean on him for salvation, you believe in him, you receive him, the moment you do that, your faith unites you to Jesus. You're no longer united to Adam and therefore facing death and destruction. Faith unites you to Jesus so that it was true of Jesus is true of you. Faith unites you to Jesus Christ. And therefore, you are inseparably the benefits of everything that's true about Jesus. <laughs> he paid the penalty for sin, so have you. He's been raised from the dead, so will you be. Union with Christ. Point 37, the death of Jesus alone has power to destroy both the devil and deliver you from death. Now, that is an astounding claim. It is, at one level, outrageous to say that. But this is the testimony of Scripture that in the economy of God, the way and the only way to be delivered from the condemnation of the devil and of your sins and the grave is union with Jesus Christ. And he proved it, did he not? By being raised on the third day? I mean, in the 1 Corinthians 15 passage that Terry read earlier, Paul basically says, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, we are the most pitiful people in the world. We might as well eat, drink, and party 
Because then you die and then who knows what. If you have doubts, talk to one of us, talk to one of the elders, one of your pastors, explore the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I'm, giving you, I'm going to give you the theological import for it and why it's absolutely necessary. So look at the preaching in Acts 2 from Peter. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. On the third day, that Sunday morning, Death thinks, I got the body of Jesus. I got him in my grip. And Jesus goes, boom, out of the grave, alive. His body came to life. It became indestructible. That is the certain future of all united to Jesus. Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now come to my class next week on Romans up here and we're going to unpack all of this Beautiful, juicy, good stuff about union with Christ. Skip down to Romans 8, 38. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Your faith has united you to Christ. God has glued you to his Son it is unthinkable that those for whom Jesus died, those for whom he has worked regeneration in their hearts and given them faith, it is unthinkable they could be wrenched from Jesus. You are his prize. He never gives up what he came to die for. Nothing will snatch them out of my hand, Jesus promised in John. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1 that God's purpose and grace I have now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We have a floodlight in my backyard. I hear some rustling out there at midnight. Rather than be terrified, I flip the switch. The light shines and shows me what's out there. Paul is saying what has the gospel has shown on immortality and life. Jesus shines the light on what it means to die in faith and be certain of future resurrection, forgiveness, and acceptance. 38. Death is necessary for those in Christ. Necessary. Paul, the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 15, writes, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrected body is the first fruit, as it were, of resurrected bodies plucked from the everlasting tree of resurrected bodies. <laughs> it's only a, time, only a matter of time till all the bodies God is raising will be raised on that great day at the second coming. Everybody's going to be raised. Unbeliever and believer alike. Everybody will be raised. Christ is the first fruits of those to be raised with glorified, indestructible bodies fit for paradise. But each in its own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And notice 1 Corinthians 15 53. For this perishable body, that's the body you and I are in right now, 
must put on imperishable. And this mortal body, that's the one we're in right now, must put on immortality. It's a little Greek word, dei, D-E-I. You must do this. You must have a resurrected body. And that raises what question? Why? Why must this frail body, which unless the Lord comes first, will die, why must it put on an imperishable body? I'll just give you three simple reasons. Number one, God promises. God promises. He promises because it is his intent to return the state of human affairs to the way it was before sin in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were were built to live forever and not die. Secondly, Jesus Christ wants you sharing his glory, and he is now glorified in an indestructible body. And if you're in union with Christ, and he is in an indestructible body, that must be, it must be your certain future too. And thirdly, it must happen, we must be raised from the grave, because God is going to resurrect this earth one day. And the new heavens and the new earth will have no death, no sadness, no sorrow, no sickness, no sin. It is an utterly different realm, as it were, than the one we live in now. We live in a time when people die, they get sick, they sin. That will not be the case in the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, you must enter that realm with a body fit for that realm, a body that can't sin, that's not subject to sorrow, sickness, sadness, or death. That's the future. Your body will comport with the nature of the new heavens and the new earth. Does that make sense? It must be so. Number 39, death will die. It will be defeated and come to an end. See how Paul puts it. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, read the resurrection of our bodies. And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And we're told in Revelation 20 that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. There'll be no death. Jesus, there's one last funeral to be performed in the history of mankind. One last funeral. Jesus will officiate. And he will t- at that funeral, he will take death and Hades and throw it into the lake of fire. And then when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, somebody might say, hey, remember when things died, we'll go, I don't know what you're talking about. Death will be no more. That is the Christian hope. It is either the worst cruel fairy tale hoist on human beings, or it is the best absolute glorious news you could ever imagine. I make the point here that we get glimpses of this. You see the promise of this in the Isaiah 53 passage. He shall prolong his days. The resurrection is promised in the Isaiah 53 passage. And you see Jesus' commitment to final resurrection in his ministry. He's walking along and there's a funeral procession. What does he do? Invariably, stops it. And it's a little detail. Sometimes he puts his hand on the buyer. You couldn't do that as a priest and not become unclean. Oh, you can if you're the Lord of life. You can put your hand there because you're the one that's going to be raising the dead. The grave will not hold you. You are the Lord of life. Nothing can hold you in its pangs. And he raises the dead. He comes to the grave as friend Lazarus, raises him up. As we saw earlier, Jesus hates death. He can't stand it. 
And he would save you from eventual death right now if you call on his name. Call on his name. Trust in Christ. Don't die in the foolishness of unbelief. Why would you persist in that? Last one, 40. A little bit of application. I'm stealing from J.I. Packer. Hard to, hard to do better. So look at, let's look at uh, this wonderful paragraph he writes. How many Christians leave, live their lives packed and ready to go? Be wholly committed to Christ's service every day. Don't touch sin with a barge pole. Keep short accounts with God. Think of each hour as God's gift to you to make the most and best of. Never let the good or the not so good crowd out the best and cheerfully forego what is not the best for what it is. Live in the present. Gratefully enjoy its pleasures and work through its pains with God, knowing that both are steps on the journey home. Open all your life to the Lord Jesus and spend time consciously in his company, basking in and responding to his love. Say to yourself often that every day is one day nearer. I'll close with an illustration that I think captures living this way. And it's from the book, A Distant Grief, that I mentioned, I think, last week by Kefa Sampangi. It's, it's in the library up here, but Dee Griffith wants it first, so nobody run and get it. And if you find it, you have to give it to Dee. Did you find it? No, okay. Dee gets first dibs. As I said, uh, Kefa was a, a minister in the Presbyterian Church in the 1970s when Idi Amin was destroying the church, rad, ravaging the, the, the Christians in Uganda. And he tells this story that after an Easter service, it was full of joy. It was an Easter service. He came back to his house to take off his vestments. He closed the door and he said, there were five of them. They stood between me and the door, pointing their rifles at my face. Their own faces were scarred with the distinctive tribal cuttings of the Kakwa tribe. They were dressed casually in flowered shirts and bell-bottomed pants and wore sunglasses. Although I'd never seen any of them before, I recognized them immediately. They were the secret police of the State Research Bureau, Edi Amin's Nubian assassins. For a long moment, no one said anything. Then the tallest man, obviously the leader, spoke. We are going to kill you. If you have something to say, say it before you die. He spoke quietly, but his face was twisted with hatred. I could only stare at him. For a sickening moment, I felt the full weight of his rage. We'd never met before, and his deepest desire was to tear me to pieces. My mouth felt heavy. My limbs began to shake. Everything left my control. They don't need to kill me, I thought to myself. I'm just going to fall over. I'll never see my family again. From far away, I heard a voice, and I was astonished to realize that it was my own. I do not need to plead my own cause. I heard myself saying, I am a dead man already. My life is dead and hidden in Christ. It is your lives that are in danger, and you are dead in your sins. I will pray to God for you that after you've killed me, he will spare you from eternal destruction. And so they had him pray. He finished his prayer and opened his eyes, and their faces had changed. In that moment, they went from death to life and then began protecting Kepha. 
I'm a dead man already. What would it look like to really live that way? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, take the fact of your resurrection and the glory of being united to you in your death and resurrection and flood our hearts with the glory, the weight, the reality, the power, the grace, and the love of it. That we might live as those already dead, but alive to Christ. And then joyfully serving Him as you give us breath. In His name, amen.